I'm searching for the place to start a career as a college professor. October and November seem to be the time that next year's faculty positions are posted. After I complete my current research projects, I'd like to focus on teaching and writing and thinking on paper, out loud, in the lecture hall, and in the company of colleagues. I've identified a position that I'd really like to take, assistant professor of psychology, but I won't jinx it by telling you where. I've learned to hold my hopes in tight. It's a small liberal arts college here in Michigan. I think it, I would fit in nicely, but not so nicely as to become complacent. There's important work to be done, and I still have so much to learn. The temporally integrated causality landscape is a hypothetical framework for consciousness as it occurs in the brain during conscious states. A convention in the field of consciousness science is to describe this as a theory. I try to use the term framework rather than theory because a theory should be something which is passed from a hypothesis into something much stronger by means of repeated failures to falsify it. I also prefer the term framework because it implies that its claims and predictions are intended to be roughly correct. It is not yet time to dot the I's and cross the T's. Framework suggests something which is being roughed in, like a sculpture half-finished. The starting slab has had large chunks broken away to reveal a general shape, and further chipping away is beginning to form the features. When it is done, it might be a theory. As the sculptor, not quite sure how the final product should look in its details, chipping away too much might excessively limit its form. To mix metaphors, we don't want to chip away the baby along with the bathwater. Rather than overcommitting, I decided to publish the framework as a work in progress, as a general paradigm. I specified that the substrate of consciousness should be a large integrated system which contains differentiated subsystems which exist within the spatial and temporal boundaries of the system. And I may yet have chipped away some of that precious baby in the process. For example, I laid out the TICL in terms of thalamocortical function. Given a large body of existing evidence, that should turn out to be roughly true. But who knows? In time, we might find that certain subcortical structures are necessary parts of the neural correlates. Still, my framework will be roughly correct regarding the anatomy in such a case. If I were a reviewer for a theoretical paper like the one I wrote, I would almost certainly point out the limitation that the TICL needs to specify one or more specific hypotheses that could be tested by experiment. In my publications, I have defined temporally integrated causality, or TIC, as the amount of causality across a set of integrated elements over the amount of time it takes to achieve it. My rationale was that neurons in an integrated network release neurotransmitter at their synapses with other neurons, and this chemical signal influences the membrane potential of those neurons. This is how signals travel in the nervous system, by depolarizing the target neurons to make them more likely to fire action potentials. By definition, integrated neurons exhibit influence upon one another in both directions over some period of time. Each neuron has active transporter proteins on its surface which act to return it to its resting membrane potential. This means that the influence of one or more neurons acting upon a target neuron has a limited time to achieve it. To get a sense of this, imagine one of those giant buckets that they often have at water parks. These things are situated way up high. Over the course of several minutes, the bucket fills with water until it gets to a certain amount and the bucket rolls over and dumps its contents on the delighted children waiting below in one large exciting deluge. It's a simple enough mechanism in which the bucket is not quite balanced so that, given enough weight of water inside it, it topples over. Then, emptied, it returns to upright and begins slowly filling up again. 
Suppose our bucket is the target neuron and the incoming water is its afferent influences. Each synapse upon the target cell's dendrites is like a hose that turns on intermittently. Of course, there are thousands of incoming hoses. In order to complete the model, let's drill a hole in the base of the bucket so that a steady amount of water is allowed to escape. The bucket can only dump over, or fire an action potential if you like, if a large number of hoses come on within a short time frame. Some hoses are larger than others, so they have higher degrees of influence. Now imagine millions of such buckets with funnels to gather the outflow and sending it rushing out through hoses, and hoses of every size feeding into each bucket, and coal-fired pumps with convoluted pipes forcing water back to the top to create a Dr. Seuss-like immense and wondrous apparatus. The pumps are pumping at some regular rate, and outside stimuli are opening valves at the top. To keep the Dr. Seuss vision alive, let's have those valves being regulated by an army of bald-headed McEvers, which cleverly open the valves with their levers. All right, this riff has gone on long enough. You get what I'm saying. The point is that each neuron has a limited time within which to integrate incoming signals, and the same is true for a signal which travels through a set of neurons one after another. So the temporally integrated causality, or TIC, is a, it's a concept intended to capture that. How could it be measured? It won't be easy, but it might be modeled using computers as a first step. The problem is that the readout of conscious experience cannot be gotten from a computer program. The best that could be accomplished might be to construct a sophisticated model that does what the TICL says it should, and then to measure activity in the conscious brain and find out whether it agrees with what the model predicts. It's undeniable that the TICL and other theoretical frameworks will be difficult to prove or disprove. This is a problem, for sure. In the history of philosophy, A.C. Grayling writes about Karl Popper, a 20th century philosopher of science who made a huge impact. Popper was a critic of verificationism, according to which scientific hypotheses can be confirmed by observations. Grayling writes, quote, In Popper's view, the mark of a genuine scientific theory is that it will state what will disconfirm it. If a theory is consistent with anything whatever, if nothing is able to falsify it, it is vacuous. A theory that explains everything explains nothing. In arguing that science proceeds by the deductive technique of seeking to falsify hypotheses, thereby showing that the traditional view of science as inductive is incorrect, Popper suggested that we should construe science as a sequence of conjectures and refutations. We have a problem and try to solve it by conjecturing what the solution might be. We test the conjecture. A negative outcome refutes it. A positive outcome corroborates but does not confirm it. It might still be refuted by further evidence. Falsifiability provides the criterion that, demar that demarcates science from non-science, Further on, Grayling writes, quote, It would be natural to think that the more probable a hypothesis seems, the better justified we are in accepting it if it is in competition with a less probable seeming one. But Popper argued that improbable hypotheses are scientifically preferable on the grounds that there is an inverse relationship between a hypothesis probability and its informational content. The more information it contains, the more ways it might be wrong, and therefore the more valuable it is to science if it resists efforts to falsify it. Because a scientific theory cannot be conclusively established as true, Popper invoked, invoked the idea of verisimilitude, or truth-likeness, to characterize good scientific theories, good scientific theories being those that resist stringent efforts to refute them." Unquote. Today we're pretty familiar with this formulation. We understand that the purpose of scientific methodology is to disprove hypotheses. A theory is essentially a hypothesis which has stood up to experiments designed to refute it. 
Recall that in the last episode, I presented a paper on patients who are genetically decorticate. The premise of that paper was that a single example of a conscious person who lacks a cerebral cortex would disprove the hypothesis that the cortex is necessary for consciousness. I don't think the paper achieved that, but at least we can understand the logic of the argument. Notice that I did not follow Popper's advice when designing the TICL framework. Rather than making it tightly constrained and committed to explicit predictions, I kept it general so that it has a chance to actually capture the truth. I kept a fair quantity of bathwater in with the baby. Am I being a good scientist? Well, I guess that depends on what I was trying to achieve. I was trying to frame the problem of consciousness in a manner that is parsimonious with the facts and the phenomenology. Have you ever played Guess Who? It's a game of deduction in which you ask your opponent questions about the physical characteristics of a set of faces, and they have to answer truthfully. Does your person have a big nose? Does your person have glasses? As you get your answers, the identity of the person in question gets narrowed down to fewer possibilities. If your interest is in getting the correct answer, you should efficiently cut down the number of possibilities until you get to just one. If we take Popper's advice too seriously, we just name the individual we hypothesize to be the correct one right at the outset. Certainly this would be more impressive in the event that we were correct, but it's a hell of a lot more likely that it would be wrong. And this strategy for winning the game, if repeated continually, would fail against a player who was being systematic. The tortoise would outdo the hare. Are we aiming to impress or aiming to discover the right answer? Still, in the end, the theory must become specified to a point of precision so that it might be tested against falsification. Patricia Churchland discusses Popper in her book, Neurophilosophy. She writes, quote, Karl Popper is an unorthodox logical empiricist who resisted the idea that the body of scientific knowledge accumulates by the confirmation or verification of hypotheses. In a startlingly different picture of the dynamics of science, he argued that hypotheses are worthy of acceptance only if they resist falsification. His point was devastating and simple. It is easy to find confirming instances of hypotheses. Too easy for this to be the right methodology. Consider some simple hypothesis, such as all plants reproduce sexually. If all I need are confirmatory instances, I can start in the garden and discover that all 654 daisies reproduce sexually, all 953 violets reproduce sexually, and so on. In short order, I shall have an impressive accumulation of positive instances. No botanist would be impressed, however, since I have not tried to find a disconfirming instance. I have not looked at cases that might be counterexamples. Before adopting a hypothesis, I should examine many different species of flowering plant. I should examine grasses and ferns, and in general, I should try as hard as possible to falsify my hypothesis." Unquote. Okay, so let's consider Churchland's example. In this case, we have a straightforward claim, much like the classic, do all philosophers have an S in their name? In this case, though, we have a huge amount of information to start with. The framework I built for consciousness was based upon pre-existing theories and lots of previous experiments. If a botanist had been studying plants for a long time, could name and describe hundreds of species, and knew that they all reproduce sexually, this hypothesis might make sense. It would then be the investigator's charge to go out and find a counterexample in order to falsify his hypothesis. But you start with a large number of observations first before jumping into testable hypothesis mode. Churchland goes on, quote, Consider another hypothesis, namely that Broca's area controls speech production. To establish the hypothesis, it is not enough to find a positive correlation between lesions in Broca's area and speech loss. One must find out whether there are patients with lesions in Broca's area and no speech loss, and whether there is speech loss with lesions elsewhere. Failure to falsify will then be significant, unlike the collection of verifying cases. 
Popper's claim was that if a scientist accepts hypotheses by finding confirming instances, he will end up believing a great many false hypotheses and following a great many dead ends. On the other hand, if he has a hypothesis that has withstood tough attempts at falsification, then he can accept that hypothesis, not as true, not as confirmed, but as the best hypothesis available so far. Because he had a wholly different view about the dynamics and structure of science and of knowledge generally. Furthermore, Popper disagreed with the assumption that what scientists should try to formulate are explanatory hypotheses with high probability. On the contrary, he said, hypotheses are interesting only if they are bold, that is, if they are improbable and thus likely to be falsified. For then to withstand falsification by rigorous testing is a triumph, and such a hypothesis is significant. Safe hypotheses are a dime a dozen, and the safest are logical truths. If what science is seeking is primarily a body of certain truths, it should stick to spinning out logical theorems. The trouble with such safety, however, is that it doesn't get us anywhere. Einstein's hypothesis that the geometry of space would be warped by large masses was, given the theory of the time, highly improbable. If Einstein was right, then during the solar eclipse a star would be seen in one position. If he was wrong, it would be seen in some other position. When the hypothesis withstood the falsifying test, this was profoundly significant." Unquote. My approach to the consciousness problem has been sort of like detective work. There are huge amounts of data, and it occurred to me as I turned my attention to it more seriously that most of the necessary pieces of the puzzle might already exist in the literature. It's rather like a crime scene. A clever detective might be able to deduce what happened from the evidence on site, even as an army of police officers who looked over the scene before him have failed. This is what it felt like to me. I may or may not be clever enough to solve the problem, but it seems to me that it would be worthwhile to start putting all the existing evidence together for myself. I've barely scratched the surface, to tell you the truth. I looked over the leading theories in the field. I followed their citations to the studies and the thinkers who are the most often referenced. I put these together with my own thoughts and writings, my own scribbled diagrams. There is no doubt that I had a major advantage compared to earlier theorists in, say, the 1990s. Lots of work has been carried out. All of the incentives seem to concur that I should find a gap in the existing literature and develop a research program at a top-tier university. That's where the money and the prestige are to be found. That's where the salaries are high. That's where the academic credit is sequestered. But there is another incentive that is not captured by that career direction, the one that lives inside of me, the incentive to discover the truth about consciousness. I'm not convinced that developing my own research program is the best way to accomplish that goal. Sticking to the analogy to crime detective work, suppose my goal is to determine who done it and how. Investigators have gathered fingerprints, blood samples, photographs, autopsy and ballistic reports, witness testimony, footprints, tire tracks, and so on. I have access to all of this evidence. To set up my own laboratory would require deciding upon a gap in the existing lines of evidence. Keep in mind, in keeping with the analogy to neuroscientific research, there are hundreds of high-quality labs already doing that. They've got funding and personnel, and they are designing studies to develop AI understand human language, memory, attention, neurological disorders, genetic abnormalities, and on and on. Here is a lady whose lab is focused on place cells in the hippocampus. Here's a guy whose lab is studying an animal model of Parkinson's disease. There are thousands of researchers, each busy clarifying their own small piece of a much larger puzzle. As a crime detective, I could start a lab to study some particular kind of evidence. Let's say the crime was a shooting, which occurred one night at a house in the country. We have no good leads or likely suspects, just lots of evidence from the scene. 
Maybe I'll become the world expert in determining the velocity of bullets from impact patterns in drywall. Is that the factor that will break open the case? Who knows? Maybe so. If I get lucky, I'll be a hero. But wouldn't it be more practical to become an expert in critical thinking and crime scene analysis? How do all the pieces fit together? What can I learn from the reams of case files from previous crimes that have been solved or gone unsolved? Are there patterns to be discovered? Is anybody looking at all of this? In the case of academic science, the incentives which militate in favor of the laboratory are overwhelming. Nobody is expecting me to solve anything just to keep the grant money coming in. If I can do that, I'll get tenure, awards, honors. Hell, maybe they'll name a professorship after me when I retire. All right, I'm being a bit cynical. Academic science does, after all, make an impact and produce lots of useful knowledge. I just wonder if a lot of graduate students and postdoctoral fellows aim toward that career because that is what is expected. That's what their role models at the university are doing. That's what the network that they're working within and becoming accustomed to is doing. But I'm a scientist, aren't I? Shouldn't I question even the way that scientific careers are made? Perhaps the incentives have simply produced an abundance of laboratory research programs and a shortage of theoreticians. In fact, I've met very few theoreticians in neuroscience, and even they were mostly involved in managing a laboratory. Given the relative shortage of analysts going through all of these data, I think the scientific community could manage to afford a few analysts to put things together. This seems especially true given the enormity of the question, what is consciousness? I dream of assembling a team not of experimentalists but of serious intellectuals and theorists to sift through the evidence, debate the interpretation, elaborate upon the framework, chip away at the stone. Experimental neuroscience is already a collaborative project. Credit is owed across a wide population. So in putting the TICL into the literature in an early form, I was challenging us to think together, to improve it, or reject it, or to rescue the baby from its murky water. Is theory so superfluous as to have become an afterthought, an epilogue to the regular work of experimentation? On the other hand, maybe I'm just annoyed because I don't yet see how my framework can be put to the test. I don't want to put together a research program just for the sake of doing it, because that is what one does. I'll put together a research program when the puzzle has come together enough to guess what the picture might show when the sculpture has begun to look like a familiar figure, when more of the faces on the Guess Who board have been turned face down. My hypothesis? It's got to be Bernard. Mm -hmm.